This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Once, you know, it was approved by mom, there was no other worries. Brother, sister, uncles, aunties, none of them didn't matter if they accepted me or not, long as mom did. This is Death, Sex, and Money in New Orleans. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. And I'm standing on Painter's Street in the Gentilly neighborhood of New Orleans. It's windy and it's hot. Do what you do. How do you introduce yourself? Will you just introduce yourself into the microphone? Big Free to the Queen Diva, the Dick Eater, your best believer. <laughs> Big Frida is one of the biggest stars of New Orleans bounce music. Bounce started in the late 80s and early 90s. It's a New Orleans brand of thumping, bass-heavy hip-hop that you move your hips to. Oh yeah, cutting up, shaking, cutting it loose. In the late 90s, Big Frida was among a new crop of queer performers who started dominating the local bounce scene. And as she and other artists moved outside New Orleans in the years after Katrina, so did Bounce. It just be like so surreal that I'm just like a Bounce artist. Like it never was in the plan. I guess it was destined to happen. Big Frida was born Freddie Ross. When she started performing, she picked the name Big Frida, in part because she liked the way it rhymed with Queen Diva. Frida doesn't identify as trans. She says she's comfortable using either pronoun, but usually uses she because she says that's what her fans seem to use the most. She tells me, as we stand on this quiet residential street, that she's been working on her act for a long time. You know, I had a signature call that I would just be hollering around everywhere, and everybody knew me by this signature call. They'd be like, oh, that's Freddie in the club. He, and he, tell me the signature call. You're trying to get these people to wake up. Whoa! You did it. That's just always been my thing since small. And before I even became Big Frida, like, I was known just for that all over New Orleans. Frida is in head-to-toe denim, a sleeveless button-down shirt and ripped jeans with black and white high-top sneakers. She has long, multicolored fingernails. They're bad right now. I got to go today when I leave. They are horrible. 
She's wearing her long hair down, but she uses her whole arm to sweep it off her neck every few minutes. She also has a small towel in her pocket to wipe her brow every so often. I am not similarly prepared. You want to sit under the... so we're out of the sun? Sure, why not? A neighbor offers to let us sit on his front porch. Somebody live there? And we settle in on the porch swing. Frida's known for her hard-charging call-and-response lyrics and for the dancers who surround her on stage, shaking it in hot pants. But Frida got her start singing gospel music. Basically, hanging with one of my friends in the neighborhood, she sung at the church choir, and she invited me to church, and then it started from there. And you went by yourself, not with your family? Right, by myself. Well, well, with my friend. Um... Maybe like eight or nine. What do you like about it? I mean, just the fun we had, you know, the the spirit that will be in the church. And to see like these Jesus drill teams and, you know, going to different churches to perform. What was your favorite hymn to sing? When I was really young, my pastor used to just break out with this, you know, let Jesus fix it for you, for you. He knows just what to do, what to do. Like, he used to just come out of nowhere with it, and the whole church used to just, like, you know, start praying and getting on their knees. You will be feeling all of that. All of that will be just, like, you can feel it in your in your bones. Were you religious when you were a kid, going to church? Yeah, definitely. I was Baptist. You know, I'm Baptist, so, um, you know, always going to Sunday school, reading the Bible, you know, trying to live by the Word. That's what it was about. Was it hard for you to go to church and also be realizing you were gay? I mean, not really, because I I guess because I started so young before I even realized that I was gay. And, um... I felt accepted, whatever it was. I I never felt like, you know, that I couldn't go and praise God. So there would be sometimes when a pastor would have a sermon that's particularly talking about homosexuality, and, you know, I will feel offended on those particular Sundays or whatever. But I still would stand up with pride and, you know, hold my head up and just keep it going. And people would always come talk to me, especially after <laughs> after that sermon. Like, really? yeah, they would. What did they say? I mean, just like, you know, don't worry about pastor. Like, not in particular saying, <laughs> not in particular saying, oh, we know you're gay. But they would just be like, don't worry about pastor sermon today. You know, he got to preach about everything. And I'm like, I'm fine, you know. And it, it was not just me, it was the organist too, you know. So when I got older, I would be able to like communicate with the organist and we'll be able to talk about it. And we're just like, it, you know, it wouldn't even bother us after, you know, we had been there so long. It was like Pastor got a hit on everything, you know. When did you come out? About 13. 13 years old? Mm hmm. How'd you do that? I told my mom at my birthday party that I had all my friends at. I pulled her over and I sat on my lap and I was like... You sat on her lap or she sat on uh, She sat on my lap. I was too big to sit on her lap, y'all. I would have probably broke my mama. <laughs> she was only like 120 pounds. <laughs> and I was probably like 250. And so... Oh, 
See? <laughs> Girl, I'm about to get up from you. Let's move. I don't want... You heard that thing. I don't want these people bench to come down, girl. The, the porch swing, we just heard a little crack. So why don't we sit on the steps here? Girl, I said 250 and baby, the thing looked like it was about to come off the hinges. That is too funny. Yeah, but she stood on my lap and... um. I was just like, Mom, I need to tell you something. And she like, what, boy? And, you know, I was like, I'm gay. And she was like, I already know. <laughs> you know, it's like. That's what she said? Yeah, she, that's exactly what she said. Like, moms know their kids more than anything. If you pay attention to your kids and if you're the right type of parent, you you watch your kids from small. But, like, once I got older and I used to talk to, like, my my cousins and my aunt. It was like, yeah, we used to have family meetings about you, and, you know, we didn't know how to accept it, and we saw it, and and it was, like, even if, when she knew, it was still something hard for any parent to accept, and it had to grow with her, and, and in time, it grew, and it grew really strong, and the love that we had was just unconditional. Um, like, she was my backbone, and she protected me everywhere. Like, she wouldn't let nobody mess with me. And when did you come out at school, like with your peers? Oh, child, once I told my mom, I just started queening out right then and there. Like, I just started turning to a little queen every step of the way. <laughs> okay, what did that look like? Just like, you know, I guess starting to flirt with boys and, you know, twisting and snapping and arguing and fighting. And it was the whole nine yards of growing up, especially in New Orleans in a uh, black public school and just was like, had to, you know, do what every other gay kid had to do, fight for their life and fight to be strong and stand up and, you know, let people know that you were not no joke and who you were. You had other friends who were gay. Oh, yeah, who most definitely. Feel as comfortable. Oh, no. I mean, was scared to come out, used to be hiding, you know, not wanting people to know. Like, if we went out, they would, like, bring a bag of changing clothes and, like, change in the car, like, to get more, you know, like, gay or whatever. And it was just, like, I was so able to be out and free. And were your boyfriends able to be that way? Oh, no. They was always undercover. I mean, all the boys was undercover. Like, most of them still are now. You know, um, they just... Down low boy, don't want nobody in their business, but they like men. Simple. (laughs) Was it hard to have to be secretive with your first boyfriends? No, being that, you know, I, I realized that the way we grew up is that we were attracted to the boys that we grew up with. So, you know, everything had to be a secret. You know what I'm saying? Like, and it kind of makes it spontaneous, you know, when you're young, that you're, you're kind of sneaking around. But, you know, at a point, you get tired of that. You definitely want to be known. You want to be on forefront. And it's just like, okay, now nah, we've been messing around too long. I still got to be a secret. You know, because when, when you first start, it's okay. But when your love grows for somebody and y'all get closer, you want to be you know, feel more appreciated and you want to feel loved. And, you know, I 
just tried to move on from those particular boys and tried to look in a different space that I never looked in before. And and just so happened, a boy came along who who swept me off my feet and wasn't afraid to be out and in the open, you know, which is Devin, my current boyfriend. And I guess if Devin wouldn't have came along, I'll still be sneaking around with some dude. And you met Devin when you were away from New Orleans after Katrina? Yes, right after Katrina. Right before Katrina, Frida had just moved into a new apartment and was hosting her family, who decided to stay and ride out the storm. Just had set the house all up, laid all the furniture out, decorated it, and then here, you know, we go to the store, maybe like two week, a week before Katrina hit, I'm like, I got to fill the house up, make groceries, all the cabinets. So we went there that. Next thing I know, Katrina hit a week later. Coming up, how they escaped and why Frida decided to come back to New Orleans. was born in 1978 at Charity Hospital in New Orleans. It's an enormous Art Deco-style building near the Superdome that was known as a place where anyone, insured or not, could go to receive care. It's a pretty solid WPA-era building that has a lot of memories for a lot of people in New Orleans, people that were born there, people that worked there. Kirsta Kurtz-Burke was one of the people that worked at Charity, or Big Charity, as it was known to locals. And it was where she spent the days during and following Hurricane Katrina, as the hospital flooded and the power went out. I have very clear memories of every single moment of every single day that we were in the hospital. Kirsta is one of the five people who I spoke with about the 10 years since Hurricane Katrina. On the next episode in our series, In New Orleans, she talks about what happened after she and her patients were finally evacuated from Charity, and when months later, the surprise announcement came that Charity would not be reopening. I really had no idea that we wouldn't all be in the same place or, you know, be able to say thank you to one another. (laughs) That's still something I would love. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Shankar Vedantam, here to tell you about a great mystery. That mystery is you. As the host of a podcast called Hidden Brain, I explore big questions about what it means to be human. Questions like, where do our emotions come from? Why do so many of us feel overwhelmed by modern life? How can we better understand the people around us? Discover your hidden brain. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. 
We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature, hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, or just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash Death, Sex, Money. We are so excited to see you there. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Big Frida is physically imposing at six foot three. Since she was a kid, she hasn't been afraid of taking up space. I was big and proud. My mom made me always stand proud. But the threat of violence was there. Just after Frida came out to her mom, she learned that a gay man in the neighborhood, whom she knew as Sissy Shannon, was sodomized with a broomstick and beaten to death. And in 2004, when Frida was dropping a friend off in her car, a man approached the driver's side and fired his gun. What the motive was, I don't know to this day still, because I just got the hell away from there. Frida was shot twice. One of the bullets is still in her forearm. Piece of metal (laughs) in my damn arm. It shook Frida. She stopped performing. Just that whole process of going to being well-known and working and then feeling like you have to look over your shoulder. She felt panicked when she tried to leave the house. It lasted about six months. Until my mama pushed me back out, and um, she was like, oh, no, this is not going to work. How are you going to survive? Then, of course, I had to, in order to feel safe, I had to go get a gun and start carrying a gun to make myself feel more protected and... um, It's just been that way ever since. You still carry? Every day. Is it on you right now? Mm Mm-hmm. It's not on me physically why we're standing right here, because I'm not worrying about why I'm doing the interview, but it's definitely in my car. And so we just kind of describe where we're standing right here. Well, this is my old house that when Katrina hit, this is the house that I was living in and um, got totally underwater. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was just so funny that day because um, a lot of times we took the storm for granted and we just would, like, play outside. You know, oh, the storm is going to pass and so forth and so forth. But this particular day, the storm didn't pass. The storm actually hit. And once the storm hit, everything still was fine. But, like, hours later, you saw the water started coming and the water started rising. And it was just unbelievable just to see how fast the city had filled up with water. And just like to see all three of the cars get, you know, underwater. The tree on side the house, you know, hit the house and opened the seal and it knocked off one of the columns. We had like, it was just so scary. And who are you with? 
Uh, me, my brother, my sister, and my uncle, and my sister's newborn baby. They were all on the second floor of the duplex. It's not here anymore. The rest of the block is tidy, rebuilt houses, but where Frida lived is just an empty lot with overgrown grass. I don't know why they didn't build it back. During Katrina, as the water rose, Frida and her family punched a hole through the roof to try to signal for help. Some people in the neighborhood just like random people rescuing everybody out their houses, and they came on the boat. Wow. Like, we, we handed the baby out first, and then all three of us went one by one. They were trying to pry the door open to get us out, but that wouldn't work, so we had to climb out the window. And how long between when the boat picked you up, how many days was it until you got to somewhere dry with electricity? Oh, maybe about six or seven. Wow. Yeah, because we actually was going to the Superdome. Um, when we got to the Superdome, they was turning everybody around the Superdome, saying, don't go in the Superdome, go to the convention center. So then, as we're walking to the convention center, me and my brother, we decided that we were going to go loot, you know, to get us some drinks or whatever, and, you know, make sure that we had some stuff. Was that the word that you used? Yeah, everybody was like, we're going to loot, you know? <laughs> so he would... He went one way, I went one way, and we said we was going to be back in like 20 minutes. That 20 minutes turned to not seeing my brother for months. Mm -hmm. And um, once we got to the convention center, it was like everybody had to move outside. It hadn't got super hot inside of there. Um, Everybody using the bathroom hadn't ran everybody out the convention center anyway. It was just like feces everywhere, you know, urine smell. It was so strong. As soon as you open the convention center door, that's all you smelled. So it was just like sleeping on the ground in front of the convention center, waiting for the buses. And then when the buses finally arrived to come, um, everybody just like so anxious to leave. They're about to turn the buses over, like really like rocking the buses. It was just, you know, it was a survival time. And And you were well known in New Orleans. I was. When Katrina hit. Very much. Did people recognize you? <laughs> Not really. I mean, I hadn't grew a full beard, <laughs> like full face. Um, hair was. You couldn't shave, or just that it wasn't a priority. I couldn't. I couldn't shave. Did, are you comfortable when you have a, a beard growing? Oh no, honey. <laughs> I've had baby smooth face since I was a baby, so <laughs> I do not like when I have hair in my face. It irks me and it drives me like. No, it got to feel smooth, you know, and so, I so did. nobody could recognize you. No, they, this beard. Right, and, you know, a few people did, and I stopped a few people and was like, you know, it's me or whatever. But it didn't matter who you was at the time. If you had money, if you had nice house, nice car, it didn't matter who you was. Everybody was in the same boat trying to survive and get away from New Orleans. You were away for two years. Why did you come back? No place like home. <laughs> There's no place like New Orleans. Um, just like I missed all the food. I missed not being able to go everywhere that I know. Houston was so big, child, I was lost in Houston. It's just, I, little old New Orleans, that's, that's what I need in my life. Was it hard to come back after going through that here? No. It was just like, you know... 
the money was plentiful. You know, a lot was happening after Katrina. I mean, money slinging everywhere. You know, everybody had FEMA checks, girl. You had FEMA Fridays at the club. Oh, yes. <laughs> FEMA Fridays at the club and FEMA checks. That was the most important. <laughs> Baby, they were spending that money like crazy, like water. How do you think about Big Frida and what Big Frida sort of represents in terms of sexuality and what it is to be a, a man in New Orleans? Well, I just feel like, you know, I'm me. I'm just, I'm so different than most people think that I am. They see one thing, but they, they just really don't know the real me. Like, when I'm at home, I'm just chilling and I'm relaxing. It's like I'm very laid back. I'm not as flamboyant as people think, you know, like I like to be just low key, you know, I've always been that way, but always confident. And when it's time for me to stand and step up and be out loud, I know how to do that. You the know, signature call comes, right? Yeah. The signature call <laughs> comes very loud and proud. Frida's now also the star of a reality show called Big Frida, Queen Diva. It's broken ratings records for the cable network Fuse. Frida's mother, Vera, was a character on the show initially, and the show covered the aftermath of Vera's death from cancer in 2014. It's been difficult. It's the most difficult thing that I have to wake up with every day of my life now. So I've always, you know, keep my family around, always talking to my brother and sister to try to keep us all connected even more closer now that we've lost mom. And, um, you know, just to keep myself sane, I just, like, do therapeutic stuff, you know, cook and, you know, which is a, a relaxation part for, for me, you know, making really good food and... um I just do what I can do. You know, I pray constantly, and that's what's been carrying me, my prayers and all the people that's praying for me. And I'm just happy my mom is not suffering anymore. She was suffering so bad in these last days, and um, I had to release her to God. After we talked, Frida was heading over to her mother's old house. She and her sister were working to make it more comfortable for their Uncle Percy, their mom's brother, who was with them during the storm. His leg was just recently amputated, so um, I'm back into taking care of mode, just like I was with my mom. So I'm back into a space where, you know, it went from my mom to my uncle now, and it is what it is, but God has the last and final say-so. You take care of a lot of people in your life. I do, and that's why I'm blessed. Big Frida. She's written a book called God Save the Queen Diva. Death, Sex, and Money is a production of WNYC. The team includes Katie Bishop, Emily Botin, James Ramsey, Rachel Aronoff, and Benjamin Franklin. Special thanks to Anna Hyatt, Zoe Azule, Stephanie Billman, David Herman, Rick Kwan, Andrew Dunn, and Joe Plord for their work on our series in New Orleans. 
and Elaine Kaplan-Levinson for reporting help in the city. All the episodes in our series are at deathsexmoney.org slash in New Orleans, along with beautiful pictures of everyone featured in the series by photographer Rush Jago. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. This is the Outerboro Brass Band performing it. Thanks to band members Jeff Pierce, Scott Bourgeois, Rick Faulkner, Joe Scataza, and Jason Isaac. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death Sex Money. If you like the show, subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a review. It helps other people find us on the iTunes charts. Big Frida is also a world record holder. She convened a gathering of the most simultaneous twerkers to set a Guinness World Record two years ago. But I asked her if sometimes when she's looking out at the crowd and seeing beginning twerkers, if it's not a little embarrassing. Sometimes I see them and I mean, I just fall out because it just be so funny that they just, they don't have it and they just trying so hard. But just the enthusiasm of them trying so hard. It, it has to be right. Get it, girl. Yeah, you try. It, you try <laughs> but girl, it's just not working for you. And I mean, that's what it's about, though. Inspiring people to want to live out on the limb and do something different and be, you know, go outside the box of what they normally do. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's what it's about. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.